0: Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show. Kevin Bupp and Charles DeHart.
1: Welcome guys and gals to the Mobile Home Park Academy's weekly podcast. We'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from this lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp, and typically I am joined by my co-host and business partner, Charles DeHart, but I think he's actually out making deals happen today, so he's not joining us here today. So you guys got me, but I got a good treat for you because it's not just going to be me rolling solo. Today, we're going to be sharing the stage with Noel Scruggs. He's a park investor based out of... San Diego, California, and he's been actively investing in mobile home parks for about five years. To date, he owns two parks and currently is in contract on his third. And so today, we're going to dig deep into Noel's business and uncover why he chose mobile home parks, how he bought his first park, how he manages his parks from a distance, uh, along with the challenges that he's faced along the way, and much, much more. But before we introduce Noel to the show, I'd like to run through a, just a few quick housekeeping items, if I could. Uh, first order of business is to announce that our highly anticipated Mobile Home Park Academy. It's now open and we are accepting students who have a serious interest in learning how to make money in this lucrative niche. Uh, Our academy is a 90-day intensive program and is by far the most in-depth training and coaching that you'll find on this niche of mobile home park investing. And to learn more about that, you can visit us at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Again, that's mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Next up, uh, we have recently opened up our Mobile Home Park Investment Partnership Fund and we're looking for investors just like you who have an interest in partnering with me and my team on mobile home park deals. You can read more about our company and the opportunity to work together by uh, visiting our company website at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. Again, that's Sunrise Capital Investors.com. And I, I ask you uh, if you let me show you why I think mobile home parks are one of the best kept secrets and how that they, they regularly outperform just about every other type of real estate investment that you probably know of. Okay. Let me show you that. I really would love to show you that opportunity. And for those that don't already know, I mean, I've been involved in more than. $40 million worth of real estate in my time. It's actually probably closer to $50 million now. I don't think I've updated that number in a while, but uh, close to $50 million in real estate transactions as a principal in my time as an investor. And I've, I've owned many different types of real estate, single family, apartment buildings, office, retail, uh, mobile home parks. Uh, I've been solely focused on mobile home parks for the past five years. And I have yet to see any other real estate investments that can hold a candle to mobile home parks, at least as far as returns are concerned, okay? So if you wanna learn more about partnering with me and my team, you can visit us at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And in addition to the partnership opportunity I have, uh, I have somewhat of an added bonus that I, I'd like to mention here real quick. Uh, based on direct feedback from many uh, uh, of the listeners of the show and other people that have interest in partnering with us, um, they've shown an interest in actually learning the uh, the actual mechanics of the mobile home park investing business, not just being a passive investor. And so now we're, we're adding this little, I guess, icing on the cake, icing on the cake you could call it. Um, we're offering a complimentary lifetime membership or lifetime access to the mobile home park academy to anyone who decides to partner. With us on deals, okay. By doing this, we're allowing those who invest with us the first experience of the internal workings of our actual own business. I mean, the the Mobile Home Park Academy is a direct mirror of our own internal uh, inner workings mechanics of our mobile home park operations. Okay, so not only will you get to participate in deals with us, but you'll also have the opportunity to learn the exact systems and processes that we use in our very own business each and every day. So maybe one day you want to go out and do your own deals. If that's the case, then you'll have all the wisdom and knowledge necessary while well, simultaneously partnering with me and my team, and we have a proven track record. So you can kind of, uh, you'll kill two birds with one stone, I guess you could say. You make money during investing, also learning the business yourself, so you can go doing your own at a later day if you so choose. So again, to learn more about this unique investment and partnership opportunity, you can uh, visit us at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. Uh, and I will tell you that the the offer to participate in the Academy as far as a complimentary uh, lifetime access, if you partner with us, is it's limited. I don't know how long we'll be offering it, so if you have any interest whatsoever, please reach out to us and uh, We'll give you more information, okay? Uh, Just a couple more items real quick here. If you ever find yourself in the Tampa Bay area, uh, it's where we're based out of, be sure to look us up. Uh, Charles and I, we love meeting others who share the same passion for the mobile home park space. So you can just shoot us an email directly to mobilehomeparkacademy at gmail.com and uh, just let us know what your travel plans are and we'll try to meet up while you're here in town. And uh, lastly... Now uh, This is someone of a, of a casting call. Um, as you guys have noticed, over the past couple of months, we've had um, individuals just like Noel who we're going to be interviewing today on the show, uh, those who are uh, you know, active park owners uh, who are out there uh, you know, in the trenches doing this business day in, day out. Uh, we've had them on the show. We've interviewed them about their business as I feel that we learn from those that are out there doing. I mean, you can learn all the theory you want. You can read all the books you want, go to all the boot camps, go through all the academies, but um, you'll find that firsthand experience from those that are actually out there in the trenches that are out there... You know, rolling up their sleeves and getting their, um, you know, their elbows dirty are the ones that you're gonna learn the most from. So uh, if you're one of those people, if you're listening to this show um, and you own a park today... We'd love to have you as a guest. Uh, we'd love to share your story with our with our listeners, and uh, just really so they can see the uh, the real life experiences that you're facing as a park owner and how you got into the business, and and just you know also hear all the positive sides as well, like all the money that you're making, hopefully. And uh, if you're one of those people that own a park, it could be just one. Doesn't matter the size of it, uh, one or a hundred. Doesn't really matter the size of your, of your portfolio. Reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show as a guest. You can again send us an email to at gmail.com and uh, we'll schedule time to get on the phone together and chat about you. You and your business, okay? Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Noel Scruggs to the show. Uh, Noel, thanks for joining us today, bud. How you doing?
2: Thanks, Kevin. I'm doing pretty well. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic, man. I'm even better now that I've got you here on the horn and uh, interested in learning more about your business, my friend. Um,
2: yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. I've been a fan of the show and uh, it's uh, fun to take part in it, finally, too.
1: Yeah, so you're one of those casting call people I was just mentioning. I mean, like, you listen to the show, you own Parks, and now we've got you here, right? I mean, because we want to hear your yeah. story. Everyone's got a different story of how they got into the business. I've got my own story. We've also got our own war stories and success stories as well, and um, so I'm interested to learn yours, kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, Noel, and uh, just learn more about your business. But uh, before we dig into the uh, to the nitty-gritty side of things, uh, if you would, Noel, just maybe take a few minutes and give our listeners a little bit more of a background about yourself and, and how you got into this business first off
2: sure i have a pretty unusual background i uh was in college and started playing poker professionally and uh, after college finished just kind of kept it going and was doing pretty well at it and saved up some money and then that ultimately for a variety of reasons started to uh peter out so mid-20s i i had basically no um no no job experience or uh, you know, not much of a resume but some money saved up so i uh, felt that real estate investing would kind of be a natural transition rather than jumping into the job market so i started reading all the books i could and studying as much as i could and ended up uh, learning about mobile home parks around 2010-2011 uh, and decided that sounded like a a great industry. It was kind of weird. I liked it and uh, definitely different. Not a whole lot of people doing it back then. So I decided to uh, jump in and kind of learn as much about it as I could. And and after studying too, I bought my first park as well.
1: Okay, fantastic. That's exciting. And uh, I have to ask you, how much can one make as a professional poker player? I mean like on average like give, give me like the average you don't have to say exactly how much you made um, but I mean just give us an idea because I'm, I'm curious
2: <laughs> uh, sure I mean it, it, it's all over the place it, it's almost like uh, you know how much can a professional athlete make you know some make you know not that much you know the elite ones will make a bunch of money so you know the best professional poker players are making year in year out uh, millions of dollars a year and um, you know I, I wasn't I wasn't that good but uh, you know there were a lot of you know, back in the mid-2000s when poker was really booming, there were a lot of, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds making uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars year in, year out, and uh, hmm. pretty pretty unusual.
1: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your um, your entrance into the mobile home park space. You went out and you got education, you had some money, um, and you wanted to make your first investment. Tell us what that process looked like. From the time that you said, hey, I want to become a mobile home park investor to the time you actually bought your first park, uh, Like, what was that time frame like? Then also, how would you find it?
2: Yeah, sure. I uh, started in real estate investing around 2010, and um, one of Frank and Dave's partners is actually in San Diego. So as I was studying real estate investing and I was doing some hard money loans in San Diego and looking at buying some single family houses I kind of you know met this other uh, another individual who is doing mobile home park investing and kind of saw what he was doing and um you know read some other books on the subject and, and just thought it looked really interesting and I, I thought that was a really good lead to kind of follow so I you know I met a few other park investors and actually um had a colleague who bought who just bought a pretty big park out in Michigan. And I went out and spent a month out in Michigan kind of being on the ground with him to get some hands-on experience. I even, uh, he was kind of a weird guy. We even renovated one of the homes and we stayed in one of the mobile homes and lived in the park as we were kind of working on it. So um, I got (laughs) the fully immersive experience. And, um, you know, at that point after I'd finished that, I just figured I, I, had, you know, I had as much experience as I could get at that point. I had read every book I could find on the market. I had been out there and got some hands-on experience. So I just went on public listings and started writing an offer on every park I could find on uh, LoopNet and Mobile Home Park Store and and just kind of just put put in offer after offer.
1: Okay, interesting. So, just so you guys know, there's a, there, it's not a requirement uh, to your uh, uh, it's to the entrance exam that you have to go live in a mobile home <laughs> for a period of time. So,
2: I, I will say that the guy I was learning from, he was he was definitely unusual. So I don't think that's normal, normally part of the curriculum. But you know, I it, it, it was experience, so I would take whatever I could get, and you know, it was. Uh, I actually got a great photo. I did a photo op for my girlfriend. I. Bud, one of the residents, uh, hunting camo and his, uh, shotgun and, oh uh, uh, like Bud deer and got a photo sitting on, sitting on the porch of this small, like 1960s metal sided mobile home and the, the full gear and, uh, um just had to take a photo
1: off since I was there. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. That's great. I mean, you talk about first-hand experience. I mean, you can't really get any more 1st hand than that, right? I mean, like you guys are like boots on the ground. You spent a month there. I mean, there's a ton that you could learn in a month period of time, especially if it was a park that he had recently acquired that you were... I mean, I don't know what kind of distress it had or how big of a turnaround it was, but it sounded like you... You got a great firsthand experience there, and so you bought your first park or you found your first park on one of those listing sites. And uh, it's not mm-hmm. it's not where you're located. It's not in San Diego. It's outside the state. Um, Where's that first park located? You don't have to give I guess the exact the city, first, but um, sure, you know, just a general location. Sure, the first
2: park was in uh, within a kind of slightly rougher part of Ohio.
1: Okay, okay,
2: and so t- so yeah, pr- pretty far from San Diego for sure.
1: Okay, talk to us about that first process I think that's the that's a big stumbling block that a lot of people have and it might not just be um you know mobile home parks or whatever they're looking to invest in like the, the long distance thing is just like a big mental roadblock for them. How would you get over that roadblock and then how did you actually manage that acquisition from so far away
2: sure well, well for me, not having a job was a big plus, so <laughs> you know i, I don't tell't tell me you went
1: <laughs> and lived in the mobile home park again.
2: <laughs> I, I did not live in the mobile really? home park. No, but I did have to spend a lot of time on the ground. You know, I would fly out there every, um, you know, sometimes even every other month. Uh, you know, scaling it back to every every fourth month or so, and I just spent a lot of time there, just kind of helping. Uh, I wasn't efficient at all at the beginning. I, I didn't have good systems in place. I, I still. Despite my experience, I was I was really green. I really didn't, still didn't know what I was doing very well. So a lot of it was just kind of trial and error and putting in a lot of effort of, of both traveling out there and uh, to some degree micromanaging things, not because it was efficient, but just out of necessity. So I was just kind of figuring things out by being immersed in the process, I would say. And eventually the pieces slowly fell together.
1: How did you manage the, was it like a, was it a turnaround to where you had to do park rent, like park owned home renovations and infrastructure improvements? I mean, give us an idea like the, 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 the stage the park was in when you purchased it.
2: Sure. It was a 46 unit mobile home park and about 40 of the lots had homes on them, but there were only about 33 residents living in there and there were only about half of them were paying. So it was uh, pretty, um, you know, there are a lot of structures there, but a lot of it was kind of enforcing collections. And when I did that, you know, we lost some of the residents and, um, and really kind of doing uh, a big rehab of getting all of those vacant homes that had been sitting there for a while or that were recently vacated after reinforced collections and getting those rehabbed and occupied. And,
0: you know, I'm, I'm not
2: going to sugarcoat it. Uh, having... Had no direct hands-on construction experience. It was uh, trying to manage multiple construction pro- projects remotely was was a big challenge for me, and uh, I made a lot of mistakes, and I lost a fair amount of money too on mm-hmm. screwing stuff up and mismanaging. You know, contractors are, are hard to manage when they're they're in your backyard, and then remotely when you're when you're new, it's, it's a challenge. It can be done, but um, you know, there's definitely a learning curve on figuring out how to. Manage the contractors and those rehabs.
1: Yeah, and it's actually you're not you're not hiring like the the most expensive contractor in the area either. Like you're not hiring the big you know uh, you know uh, top tier. Uh, General contracting firm. You're basically hiring like local subcontractors that are you know handyman that they they need managed. Like they're not a lot of them. A lot of times aren't. They're not really self sufficient. That you can here's the project. Here's the scope of the work. Okay, I'll talk to you two weeks when you're done. (laughs) It doesn't really happen that way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And you know that's one thing that I've I've changed a little bit on my business is I'm going more towards. uh, Obviously, a part can never afford a high end contractor, but now usually I'm willing to pay a little bit more for someone who's usually licensed and uh, mm-hmm. doesn't need as much, as much babysitting. They're, they're a lot more expensive, but, um, you know, they, they'll, they'll more often get the job done right the first time and you have recourse against them. So if they, you know, if you don't like something or if some, an issue comes up, you can, you can call them up and they'll actually, if they're licensed, they'll have to come back and fix it. So, um, I, I I've kind of gone both ways. I, I do shift a little bit more towards the, um, the licensed contractors, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, for some stuff, it's still, it's just, it's so expensive that it is better to just kind of use more of the subcontractor type when you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, financing for that park, talk to us about that. How, you know, what'd you pay for it and uh, how'd you fund it?
2: Sure. I, um, you know, pricing was a little bit different. This was back in 2012. So, um, I paid 250,000 for it which uh which is a pretty good price and you know no bank was going to finance it so i um i got a local private lender in San Diego who came in and did a $150,000 first mortgage 8% interest only and i came out of pocket 100,000 and uh, also established kind of a $50,000 reserve fund to get the renovations kicked off and uh, just went from there
1: Okay. And uh, I'm going to be all over the place a little bit on this one only because I want sure. to make sure I cover all the details. Uh, again, this, this is like your foundation. This was your very first deal. So it means a lot um, because you've probably made most sure. of the mistakes that you uh, um, have made on this first one. I mean, you probably learned a lot moving into that yeah. second one and avoided a lot of the same mistakes uh, on the second time around. Um, yeah. the, uh, the utility setup here, was it uh, City Utilities?
2: It was yes, all city utilities, um it was sub metered water and sewer,
1: okay, okay, talk to us about the due diligence, like you found this park on on uh, one of the listing sure. sites. Mm-hmm. What what did your due diligence process? I mean, did you feel comfortable in, in doing the overall um, inspections? I mean, like inspecting that the water and sewer lines weren't like collapsing underneath your feet as you walked through the park. Uh, um, you know, estimating the rehab, like as far as like your budget was concerned, going in. I mean, were you pretty close to? Um, I mean, did you did you come close to your initial budget, or did you were you way off? I mean,
2: talk to me I, about I was, that. A bit. I was way off of my budget. Okay. Uh, but you know, a lot of that was a function of just being on um, being inexperienced. So yeah. The, the the due diligence, um, actually went fine. You know, the, uh, the, the seller was represented by a broker and, you know, they, they were honest, they weren't out to, to cheat anyone. So I, you know, took all the information and verified it. And I actually found once I got in due diligence that the, um, you know, the broker had actually misrepresented things, uh, uh, in favor of the buyers uh, or essentially that were, uh, things were better than I realized just because the broker wasn't super on the ball. That's always um, a good thing. The water lines had actually just been, re- yeah, the water lines had just been replaced about 10 years ago. And that was, that was not mentioned at all in any of the marketing stuff when I, when I wrote my offer. And, um, he actually hadn't mentioned, there's something else. I think the, uh, the water was sub, you yeah, this was a few years ago. I think the water was sub metered and he hadn't actually mentioned that. So, you know, I, you know, mistakes don't don't always work against you. Sometimes, you know, you have a broker who's just kind of out there to get a sale. And, you know, in this case, the the seller wasn't super sophisticated and the broker just, uh, you know, he wasn't a bad broker, but he just wasn't completely on the ball. And there were positives that weren't represented in the property. So, you know, due diligence actually was uh, heartening in some aspects. And, yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, you know, due diligence went, went somewhat fine. I... Um, the one ball I dropped that I, I wish I hadn't dropped is I didn't get the sewer lines checked out. Uh, one thing I I, uh, missed, uh, I hadn't accounted for is how flaky contractors are. So I had a plumber scheduled to come out and camera the sewer lines, and he actually never showed up. And I was out of, or I was out of time to close on the deal until um, I realized that I just wasn't going to get that done and he wasn't going to show up and actually do it. So I, I didn't get that done, and that ended up biting me a little bit just in that we did have some sewer lines that either were already partially collapsed and started causing issues or were collapsing, but we had to replace certain sections of sewer lines within six months of close, so I, I really should have gotten that done and should have been more diligent at uh, having backup plans for late like, contracts.
1: Okay, I mean, so if you would have found that ahead of time, would you have tried to renegotiate on the price, or would you have just said, you know what, I, I, I I'm not going to try to renegotiate, but I know it now, and I'm going to plan for it um, as far as my budget Sure.
2: Concerned. So, so the, the de- w- one reason why I wasn't super concerned about due diligence is the price was already so low that I figured there, it was really unlikely I was going to uncover something that was going to make me walk from the deal. hmm So I I was, you know, okay, but I I still wish I would have caught it for for two reasons. One, as you said, I think there could have been actually an opportunity to to negotiate it even lower. You know, I probably should have gotten a discount to, um, to discount for those repairs. And then the second effect was just psychological. Even if you can afford having unexpected repairs, having anything unexpected that ends up costing you know, 10,000 plus dollars is never a good experience. So the more prepared you (laughs) can be, it'll just make you more uh, psychologically resilient to not have just unexpected stuff uh, cropping up.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's um, from beginning to end. So you close on the park to the day you consider it stabilized. Uh, You know, how long did that take? And also were there rent increases along the way? And then do you still own that park today?
2: Sure. So Rents were at 265, and uh, over the next two years, between buying it and uh, two years later, we brought them up to about 290. And so, you know, rents were already pretty close to market when we bought it, so we just bumped it up a little, you know, 10 15 bucks uh, each year. And um, and uh, uh, after about two years, it actually wasn't fully stabilized, but. Um, Um, I I just kind of decided it was time that I would just put it out on the market at kind of a higher price and just see what happened. You know, I put a lot of effort into it. I made a lot of mistakes, and to be honest, it had been kind of tough. Like, I had, um, it was a definite learning experience. You know, I, I got burned by contractors, and you know it's not me railing at the world. I just didn't know what I was doing so i I mismanaged contractors and got burned by them. um I had management turnover, which is kind of to be expected and um you know I ultimately got a manager who was able to get things together, but for a while there the property was in disarray with uh property with the property manager just not staying on the ball so I kind of got things under under control and after about two years, you know we were up to about um uh, about 40 occupied units out of 45 so we were close to stabilized and the, the financials weren't seasoned yet but I decided to just kind of put it out there on the market and see what would happen at a high price and we ended up got it, getting a, a strong offer for it so I decided you know this has been a, a really tough first deal and I've had to work, work hard for it and uh, part of it too is the market wasn't super it's was kind of a rougher neighborhood so that, that contributed to the challenges so I decided to just kind of put it up there and see what happened and we got a strong offer so decided to uh just you know take that offer and, and kind of uh cash in on on the hard work and and um call it a day on that part
1: so what did you sell for if you don't mind me asking
2: sure sold it for seven hundred and fifteen thousand.
1: well that's nice and what were you like what was your all in like three hundred and fifty, four hundred?
2: so i was um it, the property close to uh, almost broke even on cash flow so we put in about Fifty thousand um, up front to do renovations, and then uh, near the end we kind of collected back fifty thousand. So in the end, our, our the ca- basically all the cash flow essentially evened out and uh, got focused into repairs. So we bought it for about two fifty, and then um, resold it for about you know seven hundred fifteen minus uh, sale costs and stuff and and okay. commission. Okay,
1: that's not too bad. And then uh, you parlay that into another park, correct?
2: Yeah, so I did that, and, and coincidentally, it worked great for a ten thirty one exchange. I um, had uh, let me rewind a little bit. Back in uh, early two thousand twelve, I had been out there living in the mobile home in, in Michigan with my with my odd um, odd colleague, who I was learning from, and uh, we had actually driven through another mobile home park that was in a great location uh, just uh, you know really nice area about four miles from downtown and uh, this park and this great location was just in horrible shape it was really looked like a garbage dump and uh, as soon as I had driven through that park I thought man like I, I'd love to own this park someday and uh, when I got back to San Diego after I after I left Michigan I looked up the uh, the owners on tax records, and uh, you know this wasn't a mass mailing. I just sent the, the owner a single letter, just saying, "Hey, you know, I was in your park. I'd like to buy your park." And um, they they called me, and you know we had a discussion and stuff, and talked about the park. And they weren't the owners weren't quite ready to sell, but we uh, you know we were on good terms, and we discussed the park for a while. And I had been keeping in touch with them every six months or so, and then. I was actually um, about ready to sell my Ohio park or I was in the process of selling it. And that owner of that park in Michigan that i had been talking to actually called me up and said three years later that he was finally ready to sell and offered it to me at a good price. So I just did a 1031 and rolled over the, the funds from my uh, Ohio sale into that new park.
1: Oh, fantastic. Perfect timing. And it also shows you the importance of uh of establishing that rapport. I mean, that was an off market deal. That was a hundred percent response rate you got from that direct mail. I've never heard of that.
2: <laughs> That's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean uh, that was definitely not the most sophisticated thing, but you know, I was I was hey. just new to the industry. I didn't know what I was doing and um you know it, it it came together, so uh, that, that was you know pr- pretty neat and it it also you know showed me a two I've gotten a little bit more sophisticated in my marketing, but it, uh, I think you know there are a few principles from that that were uh, still applicable despite how how one off it was and one was if you're going for off market deals, there's usually a very long time frame, yes. so a lot of people if you make contacts with them, they're not ready to sell so uh you know, having having a long time span and, and being patient is really important. And then also just building that rapport. You know, that having a long time span is, is actually not a bad thing. It gives you more time to kind of touch bases and kind of build rapport and get them comfortable with you and get it to the point where they feel like they can trust you and you're someone that they want to do business. Mm-hmm.
1: No, that's, that's so very important. I mean, you kind of know that's our business model. I mean, that's a, to the T. That's exactly what pretty much every deal that we uh, have bought or, or have in contract today, not all of them, but a lot of them are that exact scenario. And the life cycle of that of a lead uh, when it's off market, it's, it's very long most of the time. And you might get the yeah. timing right. You know, at some point where you send a mailer out and that person just decided like, you know, a month ago to sell and they've already gathered up their paperwork and they're ready to move forward, right? But that typically isn't okay. the case. But I mean, we've had deals mm-hmm. that have, you know, drug out for two and a half years, like from the initial point of contact yeah. all the way till, okay, I'm ready to sell and let's do it. And, mm-hmm. um, but that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, the, the thing is like the, the idea behind it is build momentum, you know, make a lot of those contacts. I mean, and yeah. uh, keep a lot of those relationships going. Cause a lot of them will fizzle out. Yours didn't. I mean, you just got, you got really lucky with that one. Um, but, uh, you know, the, yeah. the more, the more irons you have in the fire, the better, you know, the better odds are in your favor that one's going to work out or two are going to work out of the 20 conversations that you're continuing or those 20 relationships. That you're building over time, mm-hmm. um, and you probably didn't have any competition. I mean, they weren't out there shopping to deal with a bunch of other people. Uh, they weren't even thinking. You know, they didn't list it, so you didn't have to worry about a, mar- a broker putting it out in the marketplace. And
2: um, yeah, they, they they didn't list it. You know, they had a, it was in a good enough location. They had received some inquiries, I think, both from. Other park owners in the area and some brokers, but you know they they knew me for a while. They you know I had expressed interest for years, so they knew I was serious, and they just felt really comfortable with me. They felt like um, you know that, that they they really wanted to see the park. Um, park be improved and brought up and they felt like I had kind of shown the initiative that I was a, I was a good fit for that and they were they just wanted to sell for me and, and felt like at that point they could uh, they could trust me to get the deal done and close it.
1: Had you met them in person at all or was this all done over the phone?
2: This was all over the phone. I had never met them until after we had it under contract.
1: Okay, fantastic. And did the owner finance that for you?
2: They they did not. It was um, the owner actually uh I had been communicating with the owner's son-in-law, who was managing the park, and the owner actually passed away, and mm. uh, the the park was inherited by three children. So each one had a one-third interest. So uh, you know, I didn't even ask for seller finance; I just knew it was going to be too difficult. Yeah. and the price was pretty good, so I just came. And the price was really was this a good price, so I just came in all cash.
1: Okay, good deal. And how large? How large was that park? Was it bigger than the first?
2: I uh, yes, yeah, so it was uh, seventy-three lots, but only about. 60 of those were usable after recombining to fit modern-sized homes.
1: Okay. okay, And
2: uh, I was, so about 60 usable, and there were about, 33 occupied homes and collections on about like 27 or 28
1: of them. Gotcha, gotcha. I want to talk about um, the management side of the business real quick because I think that's another big hang-up for those that are looking to to jump in uh, to mobile home park investing because the, the the one unique thing, and I guess you can look at it as a, as a pro or a con, it just depends um, of your experience, but one of the unique things about mobile home parks is that you pretty much have to be um, vertical with your management infrastructure, meaning like you can't just buy a mobile home park and then outsource it to a third-party management company. I guess you could, but good chances are you're probably going to be taking the reins back at some point in time because they've run it into the ground uh, because there really aren't any 30 third party management companies out there. Not many that specialize in this niche um, and more than likely wherever you're buying your park, there probably isn't someone that's competent to do that. That's a big company. And so talk to me a little bit about those challenges and you know, what kind of systems are, you know, I guess first challenge that you've had with hiring offsite management and, and managing them, but then also what kind of maybe unique systems or processes that you have in place to to, uh, I guess to uh, create that fluid structure between yourself and your mm-hmm. on-site managers. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure, and uh, I'm happy to talk about that because it, it's a really important subject, but I'll, I'll be honest, it's something that I, I feel like I am still learning and developing because it, it's just tough. Uh, you know, I've owned two parks now, and uh, I don't have it down to an exact science, but typically... Um, you know, I'm, a lot of the management is to some degree just uh, turnover when you're selecting a manager because you're usually not drawing from the the most qualified candidate pool. So one thing I've just grown to expect is that if I'm hiring for a management position, there's a decent chance I'm going to have to uh, fire them at some point until I do find the right manager. So my first park, I had to fire two managers before I got my third manager, who is a pretty good fit for it. And now in my Michigan park, I've had to uh, had to fire the first two managers, and now my third manager is is actually great. She does a really good job. So, to some degree, it's just trial and error. There's I haven't found a perfect way to um, streamline the management, but um, I, you know, I usually look for in managers, someone who. Keeps their house clean. Who uh, is enthusiastic about the job? Just someone who seems like they have their act together. They can, if they can use a computer, that's a pretty big plus since most of uh, most of what I do is is remotely. And um, you know, I'm not sure what else to. um, what else to comment on. You know, it's, it's such a broad topic and yeah. uh, I'm not sure where exactly to go sure. Go with this. Well, wh-
1: the managers that you've let go, um, w- give me an idea of like what they weren't, uh, why they weren't meeting your expectations. What What is it that they weren't doing um, that you decided to let them go and you, ne- you felt the need to get a replacement?
2: Sure. A lot of it's just general competency and attention to detail. So uh, you, you know, the, the things they got fired for. Typically, you know, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't follow through. They'd be lazy and sloppy. So, uh, for example, you know, we'd be doing a rehab on a home, and I'd ask them to do a walk-through punch list, and they would go through and do a walkthrough punch list to basically certify that the rehabber had done what he said he was going to do and the home was ready, and there would be issues with the home, but they would just check off that all of the items were fine on the walk-through punch list. Yep. <laughs> so something like that's a big no-no. Like, you got to stay on top of it. And a lot of... You know, it's actually surprisingly hard to get someone who has the attention of detail to actually go through the motions to make sure things are done right. Yeah. Um, you know, other issues would be, um, you know, I guess that's the main thing, just not being able to follow up, follow through, and, uh, you know, get stuff done to an uh, appropriate level of detail. And, yeah. you know, you're never going to get someone who's completely on the ball and it, it, it's the perfect package. You know, all managers are going to be flawed, but you just want someone who. Ultimately, really puts in the effort, and even if they're not, even if they're not perfect, they're they're going to try to try to do things as well as they can, and they're going to try to learn from their mistakes. Mm-hmm,
1: absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, we all have our flaws, right? I mean, so there's not a perfect person out there. You just got to find those that have uh, more, you know, positive qualities than negative qualities, I guess, <laughs> or the positive qualities outweigh yeah, the negative I, qualities.
2: Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I still haven't gotten it down to a, to a science, but based on my limited sample size, it seems like one of the most important things is actually just attitude. Do they care about the park and do they care about um, do they care about their job and do they care about their park? Like if they are treating it as just kind of something, they're just doing whatever to collect the paycheck, they're, they're usually just going to go through the motions. But if they actually care about making the community better and, and they, they take pride of ownership in, in their home and the park, then they're going to basically be more motivated to to make sure things get done
1: right. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it sounds like you're you're finding your managers from within the park. because you say, you look for those that have a uh, have pride of ownership in their own home. Uh, have you ever hired from the outside?
2: I have, and actually, my current manager in Michigan, who's by far the best, far and above uh, better manager than anyone I've ever had, is actually someone I hired off Craigslist. And she uh, was transitioning out of an office job and was looking to kind of downsize her home. And the pieces fell into place, and she moved into the park into an empty unit we had and took over management. And you know, didn't didn't have high hopes of it working, but it did work. You know, she really cared, um, you know, she had, she just cared about the community and she wanted to do the job and she was excited to do it. And she's just been on the ball and she makes sure that everything gets done and she keeps an eye out and it, she essentially takes an ownership quality where she treats it like as if she owned it herself.
1: That's, that's, yeah, that's it right there. Yeah, you know, they got, they have to be, have to communicate well, be organized and also, you know, treat your community like it was their own, you know, and, and just you know, mm-hmm. actually respect. Um, that it's yours, and and that they're there for a particular reason. They're there to maintain it, you know, to maintain order and enforce okay. uh, rules and collect rents on time and such. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think that's the um, that's probably one of the more challenging parts of this business is the management side is finding. Um, the yeah. right fit for management. And also, if you're buying a park that's got some sort of distress and there's a rehab component to it, um, finding the right manager and then also finding the manager that's going to be able to effectively mm-hmm. manage the rehab process. I mean, that's like another layer of, uh, mm-hmm. of skill set that's very challenging to find. They don't necessarily have to have uh, construction yeah. experience, but just being competent enough to, again, go through and do a thorough punch list, uh, to confirm that you should be paying this contractor for work that is supposedly completed. Right. Um, and then, you mm-hmm. know, so just little, little details like that. But, um, we, um, sometimes I, I'd say more so than not, uh, we hire from outside. I mean, we try to find them from inside the park, but I'd say if I have to look at our portfolio and our, and th- th- those that we've hired over the past, most or the majority have come from the outside Uh, because most of the parks we buy have again, have a distress component. And a lot of times, part of the reason might be the residents that are in the park. <laughs> you know, so, uh, <laughs> and so we just... And, and we, when you're
2: hiring from outside, or you're finding them um, from outside the park and then are they moving into the park yes. to live in there and manage it? Okay.
1: Yeah, they, ha- they have to live in the park. In fact, par- part of my interview process is this. I uh, first do a, you know, obviously put an ad out and then I get on the phone, I'll look at the resume and I don't put like a phone number in our ads because we'll get in and with calls but I'll, you know, make them send me a resume and a cover letter but a very specific cover letter. Like I want them... I I want to basically filter out those that just reply to every job ad that's out on Craigslist, or those actually took the time to read the ad. And so I want them to write a little bit about why they might be a good fit, you know, what unique personality traits they have that would lend well to this type of position. And so I can immediately filter out those that didn't even read the ad that they're just applying. So and then if I read their cover letter, that's more important to me than their actual resume. But I look at both uh, equally as much. And then I'll I'll call them up and uh, you know, have a, just have a conversation with them, kind of give them the rundown, kind of give them the good, the bad, the ugly. And then if, if at that point in time, they have an interest, I have an interest in them, they have an interest in the job, I will make them, and number one, they have to be open, you know, open to moving there, right? I mean, that, that's, that's requirement. Like, that's, that's a non-event. Like, they have to be able to do that. And so, um, but, and I understand some, some people have to, like, you know, finish out a lease or they have to, you know, um, sell a home or whatever. You know, so there's different circumstances. But the one thing I do make them do, and uh, make sure that they uh, promise that they'll be discreet and that they'll be, you'll keep it confidential. I make them go drive through the park. And this is, we never hire one like outside of like an hour away from the community. Like I never want to like actually transfer somebody from like a different state or like a, an area hours and hours away. I don't want to do that because then you're really in bed with that person if they don't work out. Um, it's a lot more difficult to get them out of there. Um, but so I make them go drive through the park. That's a requirement. They have to go before I even consider even consider them for the job. They have to go drive through the park. I want them to drive through, take a look at it. I'll normally, if I know what home I might be putting them in or the manager in, I'll tell them like, "Hey, don't get out, don't look inside, but just like this is the lot that you would be living in. This is the park. Take a drive through, and then." Call me back if you have no interest based on you know the actual location of the park, the condition of it, this, that, or the other. That's fine, no hard feelings. But like you got to get comfortable with that first. So they call me back and they say, hey, yes, that, that would work. I like the area; it's close to my son's school, or you know, whatever. You know, like I think that this would really work well for us. Then I continue on and see if actually they they fit the bill. But normally it's like a three step process for us. Um, but the the big one is they got to be able to live in the park and they have to be comfortable with seeing the park. I don't even talk to them a lot in depth unless they actually go drive through the park first. Because um, that could uh-huh. be the game changer for some people. Because a lot of people, actually, that we've brought in, they haven't previously lived in in mobile homes or in a mobile home okay. park. So, uh-huh. um you know, sometimes that's a, in theory, for them, it might be an easy transition. But when they actually see a park, they might say, oh, I don't know. You know, I don't want to leave my cushy two-bedroom cottage I'm living in and move, move into this single-wide trailer, you know, to each his own. Uh-huh. But uh,
2: yeah. uh, that, that's that's interesting because my manager, who's doing really well, she's uh, pretty much fits that to a T. She was living in a traditional stick-built house and was looking to downsize and wasn't, uh, you know, didn't have an issue with the park when she came out and visited it, and uh, you know, things worked out. One thing I wanted to ask is when you bring someone from outside, it's got to be more awkward if you have to fire them later on. You know, how does that usually go if they don't work out and you have to fire them after they've moved in?
1: Yeah, I mean, typically, we'll, uh, you know, we we'll give them the option, uh, you know, and we'll and we'll be hiring somebody, uh, before we make before we attempt to even tell them that we're gonna let them go because it just never. Most of the time, it doesn't work out to where If the person was doing that bad in the manager role, like you don't want them to help transition a new person in, right? You don't want them teaching them the bad yeah. habits. <laughs> so, um, we normally try to do the hiring and let the uh, the person we're hiring know that hey, this is the again discreet situation, and we're you know going to be replacing existing management. It's not going as planned. Here are the problems, blah blah blah. But um, and then when it's when it's time. Like when we know that that transition is going to happen, we'll have the, uh, we'll do it in person. Uh, One of our team will fly out and uh, we'll do the, uh, I guess, the uh, termination in person, but let them know that if they, if they, if they choose to, they can remain as a regular tenant. Um, They can live in, uh, you know, live in the home if they want to. Uh, Most of the time, most of our manager residences are just like normal homes that are like, in the park somewhere like only like one or two of our, I think two of our parks have like a dedicated, like managers residence. Like that was if the park was designed that way. Uh, but most of the home most of the park, most of the parks just have like one of the random trailers. That's where the manager lives, you know, and, and some parks have an office, some don't, um, but uh, we'll let them live there if they if they want to continue living there they can. Uh, they'll just pay the normal rent that we would be charging any other resident. Uh, if they choose to leave, we obviously that's up to them as well. But we'll kind of let them make the decision. Um, you know, just let them know that unfortunately it didn't work out for the manager role. But you're more than welcome if you like the community, like your neighbors, feel free to stay. Um, now, if they're stealing from us or something like that, it might be a different story, right? I mean, if, we're, if we're firing because they were stealing from us or they sexually assaulted somebody or something like that, then okay. then they would have to go right? But if it's just a normal situation of, it just hasn't worked out. Like you haven't met our expectations. We probably haven't met yours. You know, let's just separate, let's amicably separate here and you can continue living here in the park, become a resident and we're hiring someone new, you know? So, um, every, it's always that, a case by case, case that basis.
2: My, oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's good to know then that my one manager who I hired site who worked out wasn't just a fluke. So good to know that, uh, you know, you've had success with that
1: as well. So. Uh, but every, every situation is a little different. Honestly, I um, we're not really particular about most of our parks. We're not really particular about where the manager's residence is located. Um, some of our parks, like I said, don't even have an office. I mean, literally, we just you know, if a, if uh, we have empty units available. Um, then we'll have the manager if the phone calls are coming coming in to, to that person, the manager, and then we'll just have them do the showing at the house, like literally go meet the prospect at the house. You know that, that's being showed. They don't necessarily need to come in an office, like a physical location. But yeah. if the park had an office when we bought it, then we keep it that way. But um, we never have like a dedicated space. We don't put one in for a management either house, you know, for the house or for the office. You know, we just kind of work with what we have. Um, but uh, anyway, not to not to digress there, but uh, I want to ask you one last question. I know we're running out of time here. Um, I meant to ask you in the beginning, there's so many different types of real estate you could have chosen. I mean, as far as um, income real estate, like, you know, let's talk about self-storage, apartment buildings, uh, office centers, retail centers, uh, assisted living, I don't know, the list goes on and on. What was it? Give me like the top three things that attracted you two mobile home parks like you like you obviously probably had like maybe you didn't have a side by side list but you're saying like what am I going to do next and this obviously piqued your interest what were the big items that piqued your interest
2: sure there there were a couple of big items the biggest one is I just saw there's an opportunity there you know there were a lot of parks that at the end of the day there are a lot of parks out there that are mismanaged and run down and there's a lot of opportunity to buy those parks and fix them up and to both make a great profit from that and help make the community better. And I think, you know, that opportunity while it's out there is a really great opportunity to to jump on. So Mm -hmm. for me, just seeing that there was a big opportunity there, that that was enough for me. And then to to help um, put icing on the cake, too, it's just being in San Diego, I had colleagues and connections who were already in the business. So that helped me really get my foot in the door and I had people I could learn from.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Fantastic. And so what new advice you've been, you've been through the ringer yourself now five years in and uh, you've learned a lot, um, made a lot of mistakes, made money, you know, I mean, all the above, right? So what advice for those that are just looking to get into the business, um, just like when you went to your colleagues that had some experience when you were just getting your feet wet, like what advice would you give to new investors who have an interest in this niche? I mean, what advice would you give them?
2: Sure. Uh, there's, there's a lot. Um, well, what, go what, would, what
1: would be your elevator, your elevator pitch to them?
2: <laughs> sure. One, um, one thing that, that would be really important, I think, is don't do it on your own if you're new. So I bought my first park, and I actually knew, since I didn't know what I was doing, I, I didn't mention this, but I actually brought in a partner who um, had a 20% ownership in the deal, uh, who had more experience in real estate than me, but no experience in parks. And I I was on the right path with that idea, but he wasn't quite the right partner just because he didn't have experience in parks. Um, I'm not saying you can't do it, but if you've never owned a mobile home park before, owning your first one is quite difficult. So, you know, partnering, either, you know, looking for parks with a partner or once you find a park and get it under contract and it's a deal, um, partnering with someone who's experienced, I think, is, is is a big plus. If I had done that, I would have probably made... You know, I, I would have had a lot more fun, and I probably would have made a similar amount of money. I wouldn't have had as much of an equity stake, but the park would have run better, so my profit margin would have been higher. So mm-hmm. if I were to redo one thing, that probably would have been the biggest thing. Um, yeah. I, I think another thing, too, is just, just being just being patient. You know, it takes a while to figure stuff out. So on your first deal, you know, don't be afraid to put some extra time and, and have things, uh, you know, not go according to plan and just roll with the punches. And, you know, you'll, you'll th- things work themselves out in time.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, yeah, I mean, I even I I did I kind of did the same thing when we bought our first park. Is um, you know, my were for sl- slightly different reasons. Well, I guess some of the same reasons of like just not having experience in parks themselves, but also you know, my 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 track record was a little blemished because I lost 2008 hurt me really bad with my other real estate, and so. Um, but I, um, I had a ton of real estate experience, and this, you know, the parks have they're just very unique, and so I, I wanted to potentially avoid any potential mistakes, and I went out and I found someone that had a lot of industry experience, had been in the business for a long time, had done you know many parks, and uh, basically gave them an equity stake in exchange for them being a sounding board, you know, to help me avoid. Any cost of mistakes that might come my way and I did that um for the first couple of deals and then didn't really need it after that point in time and uh, that was like my that was like my 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 comfort zone you know like me just saying, hey, this is like my This is my little safety net here that I have, and um, hopefully that can save me money along the way. The little bit of equity I give away, hopefully I save more than that by not making the mistakes I could have potentially made. Uh, No, but I think that's great advice. um, Is to go find a partner that's got the experience. Um, You find you know how to find. I mean, if you can figure out how to find a great opportunity, um, then you shouldn't have a challenge. If you do, you know the legwork to find an operator like you or I know that, you know, yeah. is open to potentially partnering on something and, uh, and kind yeah, of showing I, you the I way.
2: Agree if it's a good deal, then, you know, there are plenty of, experienced operators who will be happy to partner with you and help yeah, you out
1: on it. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, good deal, though. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And uh, guys, that's that's all we have uh, for today's episode. But uh, before I say goodbye, I just want to remind you of the free gift that uh, Charles and I offer to listeners who take the time to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Um, we uh, make a lot of cold calls in our business. and send a lot of direct mail out. Um, and I can tell you that uh, cold calls, they bring us deals. Um, and so if, if you're interested in buying off-market deals, you need to be cold calling. And so as a gift for leaving a 5 Star rating on iTunes, Charles and I are going to give you a copy of our script, our cold caller script that we use in our in our business. So, um, here's how you're going to redeem that free gift from us: after you submit the review on iTunes, go ahead and send us an email to gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com and tell us who you are and what screen name that you use to leave that review and we'll uh, go ahead and get that sent out for you. Uh, also stop by the Mobile Home Park Academy website at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. You can listen to all the previous podcast episodes that we have. I think there's probably like 60, I think this is 66, 67. There's a lot of them out there. Um, in addition to the podcast shows, you can also download a copy of our free ebook, which is the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when purchasing their first mobile home park and how to avoid them. And um, that's all we have no, I appreciate you stopping by. Um, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with our listeners. i, I Like I mentioned, uh, we learn a ton. I learn a ton personally from others' uh, stories and their experiences in this business, and we all learn from one another. This is a very tight knit industry, and um, and it's just great that we have people like you that are out there that are willing to help others. Um, you know kind of learn the right way to do things so no i appreciate your time my friend you have a uh, a wonderful week and thanks again for being on the show
2: thanks kevin i appreciate you putting on the show this is uh, great stuff and it was great talking to you and I uh, hope you have a great week
0: congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.